This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today we're thrilled to have as our guest Dr. Eric Huntsman, Professor of Ancient Scripture at BYU. Dr. Huntsman will discuss the search for the real Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus of faith, history, and revelation. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider visiting us online at dialoguejournal.com and subscribing to the print or the electronic version of Dialogue. Don't be content merely to consume the often ill-informed opinions of people who post on Facebook or some random blog. Anyone who aspires to be well-educated on issues pertaining to the LDS Church really should be a subscriber to Dialogue, the premier scholarly journal of Mormon thought. The next voice you'll hear will be my wife Dawn introducing Eric Huntsman to a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. It's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Eric Huntsman. He is Professor of Ancient Scripture at BYU and Coordinator for Near Eastern Studies and the Kennedy Center for International Studies. Dr. Huntsman was born in New Mexico and was raised in New York, in Pennsylvania, and Tennessee. He earned his bachelor's degree in classical Greek and Latin from BYU and a master's and doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania in ancient history where he specialized in Imperial Roman history and women in antiquity. He has taught at the BYU Jerusalem Center in both the classics and religious education departments at BYU, where he is the director of the ancient Near Eastern Studies program. His focus is the New Testament, where he has published on a number of topics, especially the writings of John and the ministry and atonement of Christ. He served a mission to Thailand and has served as a bishop, and he's currently an ordinance worker in the Provo Temple. He sings in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and he spoke recently at Women's Conference at BYU, and his address, which is on the topic of doubt and faith, will be on BYU television on June 21st, which is a Sunday, so you may want to catch it and and record it. He'll be on at 11 o'clock, and so with Without any further ado, we'll turn the time over to Dr. Huntsman. Well, good evening. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is kind of looks like a classroom, so I've got to take the jacket off and get a little bit more serious. Let me apologize for the small screen. I'm used to these tech rooms at BYU that have screens, you know, the size of a football, you know, big screen. It's okay. I usually use PowerPoint just to keep myself on track. There will be things for you to look at. I'm one of those people who gets so into my topic that I could go off in forbidden paths and get lost. So this is my structure as well as something that hopefully will help you. Let me actually begin by undermining my topic. This idea that there's a dichotomy between the Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history is an artificial one. Obviously, it's possible for us to try to understand who Jesus was historically and have that not necessarily contradict with our belief, the understanding of Jesus that we have derived particularly from the New Testament Gospels. But what I plan to do this evening is survey how in the last two centuries scholars have tried to drill down through the historical materials 
And they've made some mistakes, but we always learn from the mistakes of the past. And so as we go through this material, I'll identify what I think may not be correct, but what we can learn from that, particularly in our own approach to trying to understand Jesus Christ, but also point out what they've done correctly. So let's begin by talking about what was for about 1,800 years the standard way of approaching the figure of Jesus of Nazareth. It is the Christ of faith. It's a religious understanding of Jesus. What many people don't realize is that that is not a portrait that you actually find in any single text. Um, Many of you have probably noticed from your own studies, from gospel doctrine over the years, that the approach we usually take to studying Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John is to harmonize, to put them together. This is an understandable impulse because Jesus existed in history. He really did say certain things and do certain things. We want to try to get back to what that was. I personally never teach the gospels harmonized because it distorts the individual portraits each gospel author was trying to to paint, and, and we miss the unique themes and the unique characterizations in those texts, but that is the Christ that most people grew up with. So, as we'll point out as we go through this, it obscures the unique por- portraits, and ignore the scary word for a moment, we'll talk about it later, Christologies of each gospel. Christology is, in sum, the person and work of Jesus. What does it mean when we say Jesus is the Christ, and what did he come to do? Now, this is a personal anecdote real quickly. I lived my last two years uh, in high school in Tennessee, so I did my tour of duty in the Baptist Bible Belt, where I was repeatedly pummeled by my friends because I didn't believe in the biblical Jesus. I believed in some Mormon Jesus, and that Jesus wasn't the Jesus of the Bible. Now, I wish I had known at 17 what I now know at 50. There is not a biblical Jesus. There are exactly nine Jesuses in the New Testament. There's the Markan Jesus, the Mathean Jesus, the Lucan Jesus, the early Johannine Jesus, the later Johannine Jesus, the early Pauline, the later Pauline, the one in James, and then the one book of Revelation. Each one portrays Jesus in a very different way. What I would probably say now if I were in the mood to be polemical and combative, which I'm not, is I probably would have said to my Baptist friends, no, you believe in an evangelical Jesus. And maybe I do believe in a Mormon Jesus, and we're actually going to examine that at the end of our hour together. How is it that we have some conception of who Jesus was? Now, the next big component in the traditional understanding of the Christ of faith is what I would call creedal Christianity. As the post-apostolic fathers wrestled with this idea of how you could be monotheists and yet believe in God and Jesus, and they're both divine, and then later throw the Holy Spirit in it, they had to wrestle and they tried to articulate this largely through using philosophy. Now, that had some good sides to it, and it had some bad sides, but it is divorced from the biblical text. The next part is the result of Christian tradition. Denominations view the biblical traditional evidence through the lens of their belief, and it goes back to that anecdote I shared. I can read the same passages in the Gospel of John, and I will read it differently because of my understanding of Jesus from the Book of Mormon. And my Baptist friend would read that same verse, and he would understand it because of his understanding of soteriology, of what it means to be saved. This is an interesting issue. Whether you're dealing with a a scriptural text or you're dealing with literature or looking at historical documents, we always interpret things through the lens of our presuppositions. So we have a Catholic Jesus, an evangelical Jesus, and I'm okay saying we have a Mormon Jesus. 
Okay, I have no problem with that. But it is incorrect for someone to say that my Mormon Jesus is not consonant with the biblical evidence. It may be a different interpretation of the biblical evidence, but it still is the biblical evidence. Now, since apparently I'm throwing fun words around, let me throw this one in with Christology. Kerugma. Kerugma comes from the Greek word for proclamation. And it characterizes the earliest apostolic preaching about Jesus. If you were to go through the speeches of Peter in the book of Acts, you will find they always follow the same pattern. And in fact, in the early writings of Paul, his preaching about Jesus follows that same pattern too. And it's very simple. When I teach the Pauline epistles and students get overwhelmed with all of these different doctrinal issues, I say, listen, there's this basic Christ message in every epistle. Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, it doesn't matter. God sent his son Jesus... Now, Acts says he went about doing good, which is an important point, as we'll see in a moment. And then he suffered, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. Simple. This is the proclamation. And as we'll see, that is going to be the most important thing that all of the quests for the historical Jesus try to identify. Now, let's just step aside for that a moment. What I was trying to establish on that slide was that the Christ of faith whether you are Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, Protestant, Evangelical, or Latter-day Saint, has been to some extent shaped by our experiences and our beliefs. It is not solely based upon the entire New Testament. Does that make sense? Okay, now the Jesus of history. This started in the early 19th century, so the early 1800s, actually the late 1700s, as an attempt to drill down into our sources, which at that point were largely just the the New Testament text, to try to find the kernel of traditions about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I have a sub-bullet point here that says that this is connected with the developing science of history in the 18th and 19th century in Germany. The great German universities like Tübingen and Göttingen, they were run by incredibly brilliant men. And the Germans had this idea that if we gathered all the evidence and weighed it carefully, we could actually come up with truth. I mean, it's based on science, and they're trying to apply that to history. This was actually revolutionary, because until the 18th century, history was not part of a social science. And here I am treading on delicate ground. We have sociologists in the room. I have my wife, who is in social work and psychology. And where, where I'm dang- on dangerous ground here is the fact that history is usually in colleges of social sciences now is actually historical aberration. (laughs) At least in classical history, history was considered literature. It should have been in the humanities. And so your historical text, whether it be a historical author like Thucydides, a Greek historian, Tacitus, a Roman historian, or a gospel text, was always considered literature. I had a classics professor years ago when I was an undergraduate at BYU. He used to always say, history is nothing but rhetoric. You're simply trying to convince your readers that what you think happened, happened or sometimes more insidiously, you're trying to convince them that what you know didn't happen, happened. Okay, but there's always a bias. There's always an objective. But these great German polymaths didn't buy that. They thought if they looked not only at written documents, but they looked at coins and artifacts and material culture, if they gathered all the evidence, they could actually recreate what happened. Okay, but real historians know that what you're doing is just assessing probability what seems to be the case from the evidence that we have. We'll come back to that. Now, in a broad sense, and this is where I like this, rather than trying to find just the very bare basics that we know happened in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, I see historical Jesus studies as all historical research into the life and times of Jesus. 
trying to amplify perhaps our Christ of faith with some historical information. In a narrow sense, and sometimes the people who do this are very conscious of it, it can be about revisionist theories linked to particular ideological or theological or even political agendas. There is a great field right now which tries to read current social conflicts into the times of Jesus. Now, there are parallels to be sure, but sometimes if we begin with a narrow agenda, we may actually find ourselves forcing or misinterpreting evidence. Now, once again, let me undercut the whole thesis of my talk. If you read the online introduction of this topic, I said that the quest for the historical Jesus has gone through some distinct phases or quests. Well, that is a red herring in itself. Periodization is always a big problem. How do you know when you're no longer doing classical music, but it's now romantic or or Baroque? Uh, For instance, did we suddenly wake up January 1st, 2000, which I know is wrong because the millennium didn't begin until 2001, but we can't argue with the rest of the world on this. Did we wake up January 1st, 2000 and say, well, I sure feel 21st century today. I felt awfully 20th century yesterday, but today I'm certainly 21st century. You know, these these boundaries and the periods that we establish are permeable. And what we'll see is that people in the first century, first Jesus quest we're going to talk about, may have a lot in common with the second quest, etc. And yet we periodize for a reason. It's a way for us to try to organize and control our evidence. So just be aware that although I'm about to walk you through three, perhaps four distinct phases in historical Jesus studies, those boundaries are artificial. We've imposed them on the material. Now, as I also said at the title slide, this idea that the Jesus of history is somehow opposed or different from the Christ of faith is, is a problem. Do they have to be exclusive sets? Do they overlap a little? Do they overlap a lot? Or, as I'll propose, is there a third sphere here? The actual Jesus. The real Jesus. See, now, as religious people, we're predisposed to say that the Christ of faith is the real Jesus. And what we're going to suggest is that there is a real Jesus that we are all coming or striving to know, understand, and experience. And the Christ of faith is getting us there and is certainly overlapping with that. Okay, so so keep that in mind. Keep that in mind as we walk through this. Now, since we're going to spend most of our time together with the historical Jesus, let me go back to this quote-unquote scientific model of history as opposed to this literary humanistic view of history. Because it all comes back to knowing, or whether it's possible to know anything that happened in the past. Things happen in the past, and how do we know that they happen? So we begin... (coughs) with historical events. Now, someone wrote about them. This is why the original view of history was literary, humanistic. So historiography is what is written about recorded events, and as I've already mentioned, it might be informed or shaped by a thesis statement. Herodotus, for instance, when he was writing his history of Greece, had this theory that East and West were always bitterly opposed. And so you have a thesis and you try to prove it. Okay. Now, history, as we do it now, is an attempt to look at our historical sources, in the past primarily historiography, but now we bring in material culture and other evidence, and try to use that to come back to the historical events. But we never can do it with absolute certainty. Students would always answer me back and say, yeah, but today we have video, and we have lots of documentary evidence, and so we can see exactly with someone's cell phone camera what happened between that police officer and that person. 
And so I'd say to my students, if we are to go take a break from class, let's walk out of Greek history and go down to Hoagy Yogi. And while we're down there, we see an accident. Or some of us see it, because some of us were ordering, and others were waiting, and some people were looking, and some people weren't looking. They heard a crash, they turned, they might not have seen it all. We come back to class, if there are 50 of us, we could conceivably come up with 50 completely different stories about what happened, even though many of us saw it. And even if some of you had videoed it, you only have it from certain perspectives. And let's talk about biases. What if your roommate was in the accident? He was driving the car that hit the biker. If you liked your roommate, you may try to exculpate him. If you don't like your roommate, you may try to implicate him. Okay, so these things drive it. So from the get-go, the quest for the historical Jesus is going to be limited, and we need to be aware of that. This question of historicity, what is only about what can convincingly be demonstrated by historical methods. But just because something has historicity doesn't mean it was necessarily what happened historically. It's just what we are using, a set of criteria to try to establish. So let's talk about what these criteria are. First of all, we need to look at our sources. Now, originally, when we're doing the Christ of Faith, we're assuming the Bible is true. And I certainly believe that. It's inspired. I believe that. That everyone reading it will see the same thing. I don't believe that. So we have to understand the sources. And at the same time that our German and then other European friends were developing a more scientific approach to history as they saw it, they were doing the same thing to literature. Some of you know the big debate in Hebrew Bible studies about 1 Isaiah, 2 Isaiah, 3 Isaiah, more. They're kind of taking a beloved text and breaking it up, and they have reasons for it. You may not agree with their conclusions. It wasn't just the Bible they were doing this. They were doing it to my Homer. They did it to Homer. Homer did not write both the Iliad and the Odyssey. They're by two different poets. Or better yet, there is no Homer. Okay, so there was this attempt to critically analyze text. I was at dinner with some friends before we came here. And we were talking about music. I'm a choral musician. And how perhaps we were critical of some performances. And I wanted to say, that's because we're trained to be critical. <laughs> that's right. We're kind of predisposed. But remember that critical wasn't originally negative, right? Critical comes from the Greek verb krino, which simply means to judge. It just means to weigh or evaluate. So what we do is we go back to these Gospels and we try to evaluate them. And a lot of believers aren't prepared for this. But we have four Gospels. Which is the most reliable? I mean, this is a problem, isn't it? I, when I started Testament and Gospels class at BYU, I would say, what's your favorite Gospel? This is how we start the class. And, you know, I'll say John. And, and, and John happens to be where I work. So I always say, you know, you don't like one you don't love one child more than another. You love all your children. Now you may like one on a given day. <laughs> so I said, if we had a favorite gospel, it would be John. And I think that usually gets a plurality. And then Luke usually comes in a close second. And some people will throw in Matthew, because of the Sermon on the Mount or something. Mark, in twenty years of teaching, I think I've had five people say Mark. And I know it's because it was the shortest. Okay. Well, I have recently revised it, and I've decided my favorite gospel is the gospel I'm reading at the moment. <laughs> okay. But if there are four, which one is the most reliable? If they disagree, which one are you going to trust? So there's this critical analysis of the gospels. And you probably know this term synoptic. It means from the same point of view. You may have noticed earlier I didn't quote the gospel or list the gospels in canonical order. I didn't say Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I said Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, for a reason we'll talk about in a moment. But, but Matthew and Luke follow very closely the basic outline of Mark. 
And all three of those, although there are some differences in, in Matthew and a lot of differences in Luke, they're following the same tradition. John is so different and so theological that one of the first things they decided was John must not be reliable because he's so different from the others. So we'll see in the first and second quest that the synoptics are favored over John. The, the understanding was John represents more the later Christian understanding of Jesus than it did the actual historical Jews. Mark usually put in the 60s, Matthew and Luke in the 70s, John in the 90s. So 30 years after Mark, John is writing his text, or the person we call John is writing his text, and he's had so much time to think about Jesus that it's informed or shaped the way he writes about it. Now, I know we have limited time. We want to save some time for Q&A here at the end, but let me talk about these connections a little bit more. This is what we call source criticism. When we're looking at these four Gospels, how are we going to evaluate them? How are we going to understand their connections? And almost, well, it's not universal, but the vast majority of New Testament scholars agree that Mark was probably the first Gospel written. And then, of course, we have Matthew, who follows the basic outline of Mark, but adds a lot of what we call discourse material. Mark has very few extended sermons by Jesus, discourses. You have short parables, you have short, what we call aphorisms, pithy little sayings. The only extended statement or, or discourse of Jesus is Mark 13. But Matthew has what? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7. So you have the basic material of Mark, which Matthew occasionally amplifies or corrects, and then he weaves in into it this additional material, and we're not quite sure where that came from, but it's mostly sayings of Jesus. And then we have Luke, and he, I'm going to make him a different color, he also is coming from Mark, and interestingly, he has a lot of the same sayings that Matthew has, which Mark lacks. So this gives what we usually call the, the two-source theory. That Matthew and Luke are using Mark and they're amplifying it with a collection of Jesus' sayings, which is nowhere attested. And actually, this is going out of favor now. It's not quite as popular as it used to be. There is this proposition that there was a collection of sayings of Jesus, independent of Mark, which our German friends called Q, Verhirschbrich-Deutsch. Quella, what's that mean? Source, found originally, but source. Okay. What source criticism tries to establish is Matthew and Luke are not, according to this model, sources for Jesus. The sources are Mark and Q. So if you say there is a story, say a miracle, I did a lot of miracles recently. If there's a miracle and it is in all three, it's not that we have three witnesses of that. We only have one if Matthew and Luke are simply following Mark. Okay. Now this is getting a little detailed, but if you're paid full time to practice priestcraft like I am, you know, and so that's what you do is you just study the scriptures and talk about them. This is what you can occupy yourself with. But you see here that I have connected with source criticism this idea of multiple attestation. If you have a miracle or a teaching, which is in more than one source, right? Mark, Matthew, and Luke does not equal three sources, it equals one. But say we have something like feeding 5,000, and you propose that it's in Mark. Matthew and Luke are simply quoting or citing that, but it's also in John. Independent of the synoptic tradition, you have multiple attestation. So as historical Jesus scholars are trying to find out what Jesus really said and did, if they have multiple attestation, they say that probably happened. Remember, historicity is just about whether it fits criteria. 
it's historical if it seems to have occurred. One of the other criterion that they used was this idea of Semiticism. So the Gospels were all written in Greek. But if there is something in a saying of Jesus that looks like it's Aramaic translated into Greek or is Greek written with Aramaic syntax, then that shows that it probably was from this period. Another criterion is what they call uh, the criterion of embarrassment. We'll talk about this in a moment, but the supposition by some historical Jesus scholars was there's the original stuff that was reported about Jesus, and then there are later Christian amplifications of it, what they thought about Jesus. Would later Christians have recorded or made up something about Jesus that was embarrassing? They're like, well, what would be embarrassing about Jesus? Why would, if you didn't have 2 Nephi 31, and knew that Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness and set an example, why would a sinless Jesus need to be baptized by John the Baptist? Later Christians wouldn't make that up. So, in fact, they might be a little bit embarrassed about that. Here's a famous example. It makes no sense to the Latter-day Saints because we have a different understanding of Luke 22, Garden of Gethsemane, thanks to what? Doctrine Covenants 19 and Messiah 3. But Jesus saying, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to do my job. I need help from an angel. That was something that would be embarrassing for later Christians. So it's not likely it was made up. So this kind of odd criterion of embarrassment is something historical Jesus scholars say shows that that event probably happened. Dissimilarity is this. If Jesus did something that was completely different from what... This is a two-edged sword. If he did or said or behaved in a way that was completely different from other Jews, well, that couldn't have been made up. It must have been something he really did. Of course, you could argue the other way. If it's completely different, then it could have been original. Dissimilarity only works when you have things you've established through, say, the criterion of embarrassment. Um, Context. Form criticism. This is trying to call out what critics thought was later Christian interpolations or expansions on what Jesus said or did. And I'm not going to drag you through this. Forms are kinds of writing and stories. Uh, coherence. If you've established a block of things that Jesus did and a block of things that Jesus said, and then you have a new item, but it coheres, it goes along with what we've established as probably historical, then that too is. Now here's the real slippy one. Is it probable, and I have an anecdote we'll get to in a minute when we talk about the Jesus seminar. Is it probable that Jesus would have said or done that? Of course, the question that as believers we might ask is, who are we to decide what Jesus would or would not have done? But in the ancient world, this was very common. I know we have lots of lawyers here, so I'm treading on dangerous territory. But in a Greek trial, it was perfectly appropriate to make an echos argument, which is Greek for, is it likely? Is it likely that a man of such good character would say or do that? Here's the problem with the first quest of historical Jesus studies. They were from the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment sounds like a wonderful time. It's certainly better than the medieval period. It's Newton. It's all these wonderful thinkers. Uh, I don't want to really offend anyone here because Thomas Jefferson, of course, must be a wonderful man because he's a founding father and he got his temple work done in St. George, so he must be a good person. Um, But, you know, Thomas Jefferson, under the influence of Enlightenment philosophers, did his own version of the New Testament. Are you aware of this? And it was literally a cut-and-paste job, right? He literally cut up the New Testament, and he cut out all the miracles. 
And he put together a gospel story which is only Jesus as an ethical teacher. Because enlightenment thinkers did not believe in something like miracles. So it's taking this probable and it's extending it too far. Now, as I said, we want to learn from the mistakes of the past. We do the same thing. We have current biases and expectations as well that may lead us astray as we're reading Scripture. We're not going to get into this, Armin, but this is why it's so important to read Scripture, right? <laughs> All of it, systematically and carefully. I never subjects it otherwise. I know, I know, I know. And we're being plugged, so I'm not going to talk about you know, curriculum or anything. Okay, now, this is what you end up with. This is what you end up with when you apply all these criteria. These are the facts that the first questers came up with. Jesus was born about 4 B.C. I don't have time to go into this because you all thought he was born in zero, which makes no sense because there is no year zero, but you're looking at an odometer and you assume there must be year zero. Anyway, we know when Herod died, and Jesus had to be born before that. He grew to manhood in Nazareth, baptized by John the Baptist. That was embarrassing. That must have been true. Called 12 people. He taught in towns and villages. He preached the kingdom of God. He went to Jerusalem about 30, actually, I think 29, for the Passover, created an incident in the temple, shared a final meal with his friends, was arrested, and executed. So if you apply all of these criteria, you're not left with much. Where are the blessed or the poor? Where is the love your neighbor? You know, you're really not left with much. And as I said, particularly for the first questers under their enlightenment bias, there is originally no room for his miracles. Now later, the problem was the miracles were attested over and over again. And so today there's this grudging acceptance that Jesus may have been a faith healer. And he may actually have been an exorcist. Now they may not really have been possessed by demons, they may have just been kind of disturbed, and Jesus calmed them down. But he certainly didn't turn water into wine and walk on water. Okay, that's impossible. But these other things may be. Well, so some of you are like, well, Huntsman, this is, we didn't come all the way, Fullerton, to hear that's all Jesus did. Okay, we want to hear something else. So let me walk you through each of these quests and see how this basic idea developed. As I mentioned, in the earliest phases of this, and it lasted for a long time, till the mid-20th century, it was mostly about critically looking at the surviving New Testament text, the Gospels. And it was primarily about multiple attestation. And this other thing I didn't have time to get into, form criticism. No miracles. Bible simply was an ancient text. There shouldn't be a D there. Um, Jesus was dissimilar from contemporary Judaism and early Christianity. Now, actually, as Christians, we're a little too predisposed to have Jesus be different from Judaism. Right? He's fulfilling the law. He wasn't a Pharisee. You know, he's a lot different from those guys. Now, today, biblical scholars are like, no, he was a Jew. He must have been a lot like Jews. What you're not prepared for is he must have been different than Paul. Because we assume Paul was preaching the Jesus he wrote, met on the road to Damascus, but that's actually how I'm going to end when I talk about the Jesus of, of Revelation. In these early phases of historical Jesus studies, there's a tendency to marginalize Jesus' eschatology, which is scary word number three for the evening. Eschatology is this idea, the world is going to Hades or Sheol in a handbasket, it's all awful, everything's going to be ruined, but God will save us. Okay, The end is coming. We have been saying this, since Daniel, actually. Okay, the end is coming. Well, the first question said, no, it wasn't. Okay, anything that Jesus says the world's ending can't be true. He's just a faith healer, and he's just a nice guy, and taught people to be nice to each other. 
So they tended to kind of cut that out. Problem was, I'll show you three of these figures and then we'll move on to the second quest. Each, it's all the eye of the beholder, or the evaluator in this case of the evidence. Albert Schweitzer, who is at the end of this, said there are as many portraits of historical Jesus as there are scholars painting, which should be a pretty big clue. This is very subjective. This is not scientific, okay, in that sense. Now let's go all the way back to the 1700s real quickly. There's a man named Hermann Samuel Raimarus, and he was an enlightened guy, an iconoclast. He liked to shake people up. He said, the Bible, if it's going to be history, we have to look at it carefully. And he says, it's not history. The Gospels are mythological. Now, myth doesn't mean it's false. It usually means it's allegorical, it's symbolic. He said, the basic story of Jesus, the man of Nazareth, was kind of amplified and expanded, and all kinds of supernatural stuff was put in to kind of illustrate that he was a revolutionary thinker, something new. He was trying to escape from, he was one of those anti-clerical guys, he was trying to escape from organized religion, if you will. Okay, so he didn't want to accept things just because the church had always taught it. David Friedrich Strauss, here's the book, this is a recent republication, of course, The Life of Jesus, critically examined. No miracles. There's simply historical retrojections of Christian faith in the later period. The Bible's simply an ancient text, but not necessarily reliable. And then, as I said, this dozens of people did this and didn't come up with anything conclusive. So finally, Albert Schweitzer summarized it all in a great book called The Quest of the Historical Jesus. And he realized that we weren't getting anywhere. And so we end up having um, an end to this approach to trying to figure out who the historical Jesus was. Now, he does say something positive. Even though we can't really identify much of what Jesus said or did, Clearly, he was an influential person because he changed the lives of his disciples in the early generations of Christians and then Catholics and then Lutherans. So Jesus' influence was positive. Whoever he was and whatever he actually said or did, he did call for change. And the change must have been for something better. And so believers in Jesus today are still trying to find something better. So here are the lessons from the first quest. I have a colleague, Steve Harper. If you watch the women's conference, he and I speak together. He used to always say to our Jerusalem students, and he was a church historian, so he does it in the context of Mormon studies. He'd always say, always ask yourself what you know and how you know it. What you believe and why you believe it. Don't just accept it because it's been taught to you. Kind of understand why that. What it did teach us is that the Gospels and all Scripture need to be read critically. Remember, critically doesn't mean cynically. It doesn't mean doubtfully. It just means you evaluate it and you judge it. You think about it. Now that's true. Okay. It is important to think carefully and ask yourselves questions as you're writing, reading the text. Tradition can cause misreadings of the text. I think from a restoration perspective we would accept that. That traditions can cause you to misread a text. So as I say here, from a restoration perspective, received texts are not enough to know Jesus. We need some other kind of information to know the historical Jesus. By the way... Book of Mormon talks a lot about traditions of the fathers. And in three out of four instances, they're negative. Don't think that we in our own faith community don't have traditions that may have caused us to misread things. Okay, it's going to pick up now. Okay, we're just going to get a little bit more interesting. Because the second quest began with the assumption we have no way of knowing anything. It sounds like a little 
strange thing to dedicate your life to. I have no way of knowing anything. It says the Gospels have to be interpreted theologically. We can't drill down and find out what actually happened historically. There may be some elements that we can distill out. They're the ones who are really big on the criterion of embarrassment. The only things that we can really trust are that Jesus was crucified and how embarrassing was that. Demythologizing. There's a man I used to really despise and now I really love. His name is Rudolf Bultmann. I misread him the first couple times I read him. He said, we need to read through the Gospels and demythologize them. Realize that a lot of the miracles and even some of the teachings are just symbols. You see, that actually gets my hackles up, right? Because I love the Gospels. How can they be wrong? But, but I'm going to show you what he does with that. He said, you know, it's really not the details of what Jesus said or did for the most part that matter. What matters are the salvific acts of Jesus, that he suffered, died, and rose again. Some of you are associated with Claremont. I have a colleague, uh, Tom Wayman, probably the best trained New Testament scholar in the church right now. And we were in a faculty seminar once, and he said, and we were talking about historical Jesus stuff, and he said, you know, if Jesus had never performed a single miracle, never taught a single parable, but he suffered in Gethsemane, died on the cross, and rose from the tomb, we're still saved. Now, isn't that interesting? Because everything I've said so far is probably, oh, why is he doing this? Oh, and I'm uncomfortable. But the point is, what the second quest said is, we, it doesn't matter if we can't get all the details worked out with our limited understanding or evidence right now. As long as we have that fundamental proclamation that God sent his son who suffered, died, and rose again. Now, some of you may know that name if you're into um, theology. Karl Barth, a very famous German theologian, really kind of shaped by the tragedy of World War II, actually. Nihilism. He was more of a theologian than a historian, but he said, you know, this Jesus quest has been spinning its wheels, but it really is about the cross. Now, I know that's not LDS speak, but substitute for the cross the atonement, and you should be completely comfortable with what he's saying. It's all about the atonement. Okay. And he actually said, he called for the death of the first quest. Stop arguing about things you can't prove and focus on what you do know. Now, if you do watch our women's conference talk, both Steve Harper and I do quote Elder Holland's very famous talk, Lord, I Believe, where he talks about people when they're having doubt. He says, hold to the ground you have. In my classes, I always insist that we talk as much about women as men. So let's take an Elder Holland and raise it to Rosemary Wixom. President Wixom gave such a wonderful talk where she talked about the friend whose faith was in tatters it had all burned out. But all that was left was Jesus. And she built up from that. Well, there's something to this. Here's my buddy, Rudolf Bultmann. I'll tell you why I didn't like Rudolf Bultmann. It's because he wrote a lot in the Gospel of John. And when I was first getting into Johannine studies, he was ripping up the Gospel of John and it drove me crazy. Just like when German scholars ripped up Homer and ripped up Isaiah. And I thought this whole business of demythologizing the text and trying to strip away the supernatural and all this stuff... It was, it was taken away by Jesus. I got kind of, I took it personally. Only later did I realize it was what Tom was telling us. The most important thing, the suffering, death, and resurrection. And German-speaking friends, Dasein. The mere existence of Jesus, whether we know anything he said or did, the mere fact that God came into the world in the person of his son, Jesus, changed history. 
And, and it's almost like the second questions were throwing down the gauntlet and said, are you willing to believe though you know nothing? Now let's take that from a Mormon perspective for a moment. Are you willing to accept the Book of Mormon if you don't understand DNA evidence or Mesoamerican archaeology or Great Lakes archaeology or anything? But the mere existence of that text means something about Joseph Smith. That's basically what Bultmann was saying about Jesus. And it was only later, third or fourth read of this man, that I realized he was actually the most earnest Christian I had read yet. He was a fervent Lutheran who believed in Jesus and felt that he was saved even though he could not definitively say a single miracle or particular parable was historical. Isn't that just, it's almost revolutionary. It's completely against everything we think. Well, we have to end each of these quests. And this quest was, see how many Germans there are? Ernest Kaysman. He said, we need to have a new quest. It's very stirring that Rudolf Bultmann believes even though he knows nothing. But, you know, Jesus really did exist. And we can't divorce our Christian faith from its roots, from its history. So let's talk about the lessons of the second quest and get to the third quest. And how are we on time? Well, this is bad. This is bad. Okay. So here are our lessons. Just because we cannot paint an accurate historical picture of Jesus does not mean there is not a salvific message and power in the Gospels. I love this word. My editor, Desiree Book, hates it. She lets me use it three times per book. It means nothing to Mormons. I said, you know, stretch it a little bit. Okay. She goes, can't you just say the saving? I said, no, because they see saving, they think they know what it means. There's, you know, language is power, right? And if you sometimes use a funny word like Christology or eschatology, it makes you reevaluate what you think you know and think about it in a new way. So let me give you another anecdote. See, this is why I have PowerPoint, because I'll just go off like this if I don't have a slide and buttons to push and bullets to form here. So I'm in the Jerusalem Center having a wonderful time teaching my students. And I said, you know what? I don't want to hear the word atonement again for a month. And they looked at me like I was a heretic. What do you mean? I said, first of all, it's like saying the first principle of the gospel is faith. Absolutely not. It's faith in Jesus Christ. If you're going to say atonement, you better say the atonement of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, I'm going to think it's a goat back in the Old Testament. Okay. But second, I want you to somehow express what the atonement of Christ is in a new way so you'll think about it differently. Well, I don't know what to do, Brother H, or Huntsy, or Papa Hunts, whatever they call me. They always have nicknames for me. Never do that, BYU Provo, but JC, you do some I said, try this. Next fast Saturday, because we tried to make up, make nice with Israelis when we opened Jerusalem Centers, we decided to have church on Saturdays, even though all the native Christians on Sunday, but I'm not going to boast an opinion. I'm a man of no opinions. So next fast Saturday, next fast Saturday, if you're going to bear your testimony, try saying, I believe that Jesus suffered, died, and rose again for me. Rather than just saying, I believe in the atonement. I mean, what does that do? It personalizes it. It's not just some mechanical thing in the ether that saved us. Jesus, he suffered, sweat blood. He was whipped, he was spit upon, he died on a cross. How we talk about things matters. Salvific, salvific, try it. That's how I got off on that digression. You always need to know where you went. So I've already told my Tom Wayman story. The basic K-Rugma is paramount. That's why the first thing I did for Desert Book was a Savior's Last Week. Because the miracles and the parables and the sermons were not as important as the last days of the Savior. From a restoration perspective, in some ways the symbolism of Jesus' acts and even teachings can be 
as important as the acts and words themselves. And this is what I recently tried to do in the miracles book. I believe with all my heart in all 36 of those miracles, all 21 of the summaries, and all 11 of the reports. But we have time for story. Okay, so I'm moving from classics to ancient scripture, 2003. First New Testament Gospels, religion, 211 class. And I was a classicist, I was a historian. I didn't know how to do the seminary institute thing. I, I didn't know you had to be moving and exciting and funny and cry and do all these things. So I thought, I've got to find a way, you know, I've got to be a religion teacher. And so I'm teaching that wonderful miracle in Mark 2 about the man lowered through the roof, right? And, uh, and I, I witnessed, and if some of you have read the book, you know the story, it's in the introduction. And so I testified, because that's what you do. You teach the text. I was going to do that correctly. And then you testify. I said, you can be healed too, you know. I testified you can be healed too. And all the, most of the class, they were smiling. They were nodding. They were with me. And I don't remember her name. I can't remember her face. I just remember there was a woman towards the back of the room who looked so sad. And it haunted me. It haunted me. And so my prayers that night, I said, Lord, what did I do wrong? And the thought that came to me, perhaps it was an answer, was that young woman had been praying for a specific miracle for years, and it had not come. And so my enthusiasm that, yes, that miracle can happen, what is so encouraging for many of us can be discouraging and disheartening for others. And I resolved there and then I was going to teach the miracles differently. And a few years later, I wrote a book. But that's because it became apparent to me, in, and, and Jesus gives us the clue in that story. What's easier to say of the man of palsy? Take up thy bed and walk, or thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, when we pardon or forgive people, it's words. It's not that hard. For us, the idea of healing a physical ailment with, you know, nothing, not even your hands, is impossible. But really, what was harder for Jesus? To heal that man of paralysis, or to sweat blood, suffer a cross, and die? It's harder to forgive the sins. And so clearly, that miracle of restoration of health is a, a type, a symbol of the restoration of spiritual life. And so the point is, every one of those miracles can be true, but they can have a deeper meaning. And so my attempt recently was to see how each of those different miracles, five different categories of miracles, nature miracles, healings, casting out devils, restoring senses, raising the dead, reflect or symbolize a different aspect of the atonement. So this is the point. That's what I learned from the second quest. It's okay to not know the details. And even if those things did happen, could they symbolize something that's really important? Okay, let's get to the third quest, because this is the one we're still in, and this is kind of fun. Because it's really messed up! (laughs) Because a lot of the proponents of the third quest, because we discovered new text, we got new evidence, and this is what historians want. You want to go to an archive, you want to find information, you want to do new research, you want to do a new survey. We started finding all these funky texts and garbage dumps in Egypt. Okay, that's what Fayum and Nagamadi are, the garbage dumps. And we find these texts, and you've got a Gospel of Philip, you've got a Gospel of Mary Magdalene, you've got this stuff, it's cool, it's different. If any of those could be dated at the same time as our canonical Gospels, then you could give them equal weight, presumably. presumably. If they're written two or three hundred years later, No. And yet there's a tendency to privilege these non-canonical texts. What one conservative scholar called an inversion of authority. The first quester said we have given too much authority and credence to these religious texts. They're not historical texts. With the third quester, some of them have done the same. We're not going to rely on John, because he's certainly not as good as Mark, Matthew, and Luke. 
But that Gospel of Judas, that sure is intriguing. Maybe it's right. So that's a bit of a problem. But here, no offense here. In my PowerPoints, red, unless it's the blood of Jesus, red is usually bad. Because there's a university north of us. Okay? And blue, cougar blue, is usually good. But anyway, this is pretty neutral. This kind of orange color is my wife's favorite color. Careful cultural contextualization. Now, this is good. We need to understand this evidence, whether it comes to the canonical text or these new texts, within their cultural context. If we can learn as much about first century Judaism as possible, we might be able to understand those texts better. And this is where it's gotten fun, albeit dangerous. If we really understand the time and culture in which the man Jesus lived, what we know about other preachers and other messiahs and other leaders and other teachers in that period might help us understand Jesus. And so there's an attempt to fit Jesus into a model. Is he an apocalyptic prophet? Remember the first question said, no eschatology, the world's not ending. Well, we've now found out that Jews always, they all thought the world was ending in the first century. So maybe he really could have said things like, you're going to see the Son of Man pretty soon. Okay, so we have three really big names in historical Jesus studies who say he's a charismatic prophet. He's a charismatic healer, apocalyptic prophet, excuse me. Croissant, this is dumb. Dominic Croissant is brilliant, but brilliant people are dangerous. Okay, he's a cynic philosopher. I'll tell you why this is dangerous. He was a Jew. No one debates this. First century Jew in Palestine. Cynic philosophers live in Greece. Okay, so anyway, that doesn't work. (laughs) Messiah, oh, I love right. Social prophet, Richard, he's a little... He wants Jesus to be a Marxist. We'll just leave it there. (laughs) A man whom I really like, Ben Witherington. He's a great evangelical scholar, but a solid scholar. He said the same thing Strauss did in the first quest. Remember Strauss said, there are as many portraits as there are painters. And now Witherington says, there are as many portraits as there are scholarly painters. We're all coming up with different things. You know what? We're going to skip this one. So let's just talk about a few of these fellows. E.P. Sanders. As had been the case since the first and second quest, favored the synoptic accounts, but he proposes that even they have a fair amount of after-the-fact creation. Sanders did not necessarily believe that Jesus thought he was the Messiah or thought he was going to establish a church. He was a great teacher. He might have been an apocalyptic prophet. The reason he was crucified was not to, for any salvific purpose, use it again, salvific, not to atone for the sins of the world, not to bring us eternal life, but because he tipped some people off by cleansing the temple. It's all political. Now, I have a fun story, and we'll still have time for questions, I promise. Um, have any of you heard of the Jesus Seminar? This is a group of mostly American scholars who started getting together under the um, instigation of a man named Robert Funk, who are third questers, and they got together, and they said, we are going to establish what Jesus actually said by critically examining these four texts, <laughs> And because we want some non-canonical ones, there's a Gospel of Thomas that we can all agree upon. So we actually are going to have five Gospels we're looking at. And we're going to take it same by same and use all of the traditional criterion, plus the fact that we know what the first century Jewish world was like. And we're going to vote which ones are likely, possible, not likely, or definitely not true. And if you get this book, it's still on Amazon.com since we're getting... You need to come. If you get him, you need to come in September for Saints of Another Color. It's a fascinating book. I haven't finished it. But this idea of whiteness, I mean, you know all about this. Mormons weren't white because they didn't fit into 19th century Washington. It's, it's a great book. It's not going to be what you think. It's, it's a great book. So come. But anyway, back to this. 
Um, Amazon.com, that's how I got on that. You get it, and it's color-coded. Any of you have those red-letter editions of the Bible when you were growing up where the words of Jesus were in red? Okay, red means Jesus said it, just like your red-letter edition. Pink means maybe he said it. Gray means he probably didn't say it. Black, no, he didn't say it. Later, they decided to do that with the miracles and acts of Jesus as well. Now, here's the story, because the stories are more fun than what I'm teaching. They went on the road, and they still do. It's now called the Quest Star Institute. They go on the road all over the country, and they have their seminars, and they all come and give speeches, but they get a lot of the rest of us to pay to go watch them talk to each other. And so anyway, I had just come over to this education, and Andy Skinner, the dean, called me and Tom in. He said, you two, we feel like we need to know what's going on at the Jesus Seminar. We're sending you to New York City to go to the Jesus Seminar. And Tom, who's very calm and very thoughtful and very capable, just said, all right. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to Jesus somewhere. And so Dean's going to have to say, now, Brother Huntsman, we're not asking you to go and defend the faith. We're just going you to watch and come back. <laughs> it was funny. The first day we're at an elevator, we have our little name tags on, like some of you, you know, Tom Wayman, Eric Huntsman, Brigham Young University. And we had a couple people say, oh, we're so glad you're here. Like, you poor benighted Mormons, we're glad you're seeing the light and coming to our seminar. So anyway, what they would do is we paid for it. Well, BYU paid for these banquets for us to go to each night. And they would have each night at dinner a question of the evening. And then the, and we'd all get to vote on it as if we were part of the Jesus Seminar. And so the first couple nights we didn't do anything. The last night, um, the question was, I'm going to use salvific for the third time. Did the death of the man Jesus on the cross have any salvific significance? I said, Tom, we've got to vote. We can't let this one go. So we went and threw our red pebbles in. I think the vote was something like 13 red pebbles, 20 pink, you know, 60 gray, and 200 black. Two of those 13 red pebbles were BYU Mormon red pebbles. Anyway, so that's the Jesus Seminar. Marcus Borg has just died. He's a member of the Jesus Seminar, but I had the same kind of repentant experience with Borg that I had with Rudolf Bultmann. Because I only knew that Marcus Borg was part of the Jesus Seminar, and I thought, well, that just means he doesn't really believe in Jesus, and he's just gone overboard. You know, we make mistakes when we just assume we know people without reading and studying and getting to know them. He, like some of these other people, said Jesus was political, and I just started rereading him, and it's so good. He said he was political, but he was against Roman oppression, but he said also against the Jewish exploitation of the leadership, and and also the nationalists who want to rebel against Rome. But Jesus says, no, you're just going to get yourself killed. You should love each other. It's just really amazing. Jesus' call to mercy, love, and forgiveness flew in the face of Jewish expectations. Now, he's very much the product of his background. We all see things through the lens of our own preconceptions and our own temperament. But he's a, he's a mainstream Protestant. His wife, Marianne, is an Episcopalian priest. And so he's just kind of like you know a mainline Protestant or Episcopalian. He is representative of mainstream liberal Protestantism. But he believes that even though Jesus may not have said and done everything that the texts say he did, there's no doubt that Jesus changed the world. And Marcus Borg, may rest in peace, was a committed Christian. I mentioned this fellow in passing, John Dominic Croissant. He used to be a Catholic priest, no longer. Um, doesn't believe Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet. He thought he was a social reformer. The one thing Dom is a little dangerous for is he's notorious for downdating non-canonical texts, which means almost all scholars understand that these apocryphal Gospels are one, two, 250 years later than the canonical ones. And so this idea of privileging them, it's, how can you justify that? 
Well, John would say, well, you know, everyone says it was written in 150, but I think it was really written in 90, which means it's as, late as early as John, so we can count. So he's a little dangerous in that regard. Bart Ehrman, <laughs> some of you may know him. He's a very prominent scholar uh, at Duke, and he publishes a lot with OUP, Oxford University Press. Uh, he was an evangelical Christian, but because he had such a rigid view of Scripture and had been absolutely inerrant, as he got into biblical studies, and particularly textual studies and textual criticism, and realized the Bible wasn't everything he had learned in Sunday school as a kid, his whole kind of faith system collapsed. He's a very good man. Just because one is no longer traditionally faithful doesn't mean he can't be a good man, or a, good, or a woman can't be a good woman. Um, but anyway, he's mostly focused on looking at the text. If there are manuscript problems or text contradicts another, that shows that the Christian movement was fluid, and well, maybe it's really not telling what the historical man Jesus did. But here are the lessons from the third quest, if you will. Research into the history, religion, literature, material, culture, philosophy, and any other evidence we can get from the first century. It's really important. As much as we can know about the time and the culture of Jesus, the better off we are. And I say absolutely yes. Completely for that. Jesus is best understood from models from his own time and culture. Well, it's probably true. The danger is, though, if what you're... Any of us that have worked with honors theses or master's students or any students writing papers, they write a thesis or they come up with a proposition in the course of their research, and even though their subsequent research doesn't bear it out, they're so invested in the work they've done so far, they do not let go of it. Okay, and what's the problem if you think that Jesus must be understood as a first century social reformer, even if there's evidence that suggests that's not the case? Now, now here's, I have a positive restoration perspective that's a bullet point, and then I have a negative one that I haven't listed here, but I guess I'm being blogged, so I just as well have. We're taught to seek wisdom from out of the best books, to read all good books. That goes along with looking to everything we can. If you want to know Jesus better, why wouldn't you want to know everything about the world in which he lived? But you know what? Holding tenaciously to a modern perspective, if it doesn't come from an authoritative source, which in our faith community usually means something signed by 15 people, okay? Not just one apostolic opinion, but it's got to be 15. If you hold too tenaciously and aren't open for, open-minded for some little adjustments here and there, you may go off in a wrong direction, like some of these third questers are. You know, in my mission, when we were trying to explain the need for more scripture than one, we had this little, this kind of a facile, puerile <coughs> model, but we'd say, Tommy Jutio. Samad Kian Gilan. How many lines can you draw through one dot? Lots. Me Jut Sang Jut. You know, how many straight lines? You know, the fact that we have four books of scripture and fifteen prophets, seers, and revelators, I mean we have a lot of things to control. Um, but let's not just do it because Aunt Bertha said that's what it was. Or you found a stray passage in the Journal of Discourses. Or Brigham Young was reported to have said this. Okay. So just be careful about holding on to some of these things. Be careful about our preconceptions. Now this is what I promised, and we'll be ready for questions in about five minutes. No one has defined this as a fourth question yet that I've seen. But I have noticed in the literature that there's a shift in some people who I've read and a couple whom I've met. I really like what they're doing. There seems to be a new or a growing confidence in the canonical Gospels. There are a lot of good scholars who are saying, they sure have spent a lot of time in the last 200 years 
tearing up texts that for 1,800 years everyone believed. And, let's, and all this evidence we now know about the first century actually bears up a lot of these things in these texts which people have been arguing about for 200 years. My buddy John has been rehabilitated. There are now scholars who say, if not the Gospel of John itself, its source, the beloved disciple, seems to have known the world of first century Judaism and the geography and the buildings of Jerusalem better than Mark, Matthew, Luke. So we no longer have to ignore one of our four pieces of evidence. And I've listed some of those people there. And there has been this question, what criterion of embarrassment? Should that really decide what Jesus said or did? Because we think it might have been embarrassing to Christians in the second century. Really, multiple attestation? What if John is the only one, not even in our little chart here, John is the only one who talks about the man born blind. Really? It couldn't have happened because we don't have multiple attestation? So there's been a question of whether the criteria are even valid. And then there is this issue that I have been interested in recently about miracles. It was really uh, (coughs) encouraged when I was reading a man named John Meyer He's read a, wrote in a series called The Marginal Jew. I was researching his volume that dealt with miracles. And, and, you know, he said, historicity, let's look at our sources. He said, you know, it doesn't, don't, don't buy into this thing that it doesn't make sense. Miracles couldn't have happened. Historicity is not about whether a miracle could have happened. It's about whether Jesus and the people who saw him do things thought they were right. Okay, the purpose of evidence is not to tell us what we think, but just whether, and, and I've already mentioned that some people say, yeah, there's a lot of evidence that he's a faith healer and exorcist. Oh, in fact, there he is. I should have had my notes out. John Paul Meyer, he's still a priest, unlike Dominic Croissant, who no longer is. He's at Notre Dame, and he has this multi-volume thing called a marginal Jew. He sees Jesus in the first century context, but he sees him as blazing new ground and not quite fitting in, hence the title marginal. Here's a man, I'm going to read from him in a moment so you can see why I like him so much. N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, he is a retired Anglican bishop, and he uses all of these historical criteria to sort through the evidence, but he comes down solidly on that kerygma. In fact, the first book, and I didn't have a picture of Challenge of Jesus, but the one I was looking for was The Resurrection of the Son of God. Tom Wright refuses to give any ground on the resurrection. It's not a symbol It wasn't a spiritual raising of dead Jesus. Jesus bodily rose from the tomb. Um, I brought it with me. If I have one book I suggest besides Saints of Another Color that you get from Amazon.com, it's The Meaning of Jesus' Two Visions. It's a dialogue between Tom Wright, whom I love, and Marcus Borg, whom I didn't like, but now have a new kind of appreciation of. What you get are two sides of the argument, a liberal one and a conservative one. And you see two people who disagree, but are cordial and respectful. In fact, as I was rereading it on the plane, it was interesting to see how many times said Marcus would say, Tom thinks this, and I understand why, but I'm not convinced. And Tom Wright would say, Marcus thinks this. I think the evidence suggests it's not that. You know, there's something about civility. This whole idea that academic studies of religion or anything else need to be polemical and vitriolic really needs to go, particularly if we claim to be Christians. So this, this is what I wanted to read to you, because it's going to move into the last thing we're going to talk about, and I'm only giving you 15 minutes for questions, but I have a lot to say. Um, he is talking about whether the historical Jesus or the Jesus Christ of faith is the big thing, or whether it's the Jesus we find in our heart. Okay. 
talks about coming to know the actual Jesus. He says, what does it mean to know someone? Human beings, uh, humans being what they are, this is a great mystery. It's clearly different from knowing about them. If we say we know someone, it implies something of a relationship. When someone claims to know Jesus of Nazareth in this sense, they are making a claim about things as well, the existence of a, a spiritual world. A distinctive, recognizable person in that world we have identified with Jesus. In that knowledge, we come to know about Jesus. In the context of a personal relationship, we discover more about who Jesus is, what he is like. Now, that's what we've been talking about. Listen to this. This is really beautiful. What gladdens Jesus, what grieves Jesus, what he longs for and laughs at, what he offers One is confronted with a love rooted in historical action and passion. A love that has accomplished for us something that we desperately needed and could not have done for ourselves. This is a scholar writing so personally about his feelings for Jesus. And that's that's where I want to slide into. I could say a lot about Craig Evans. He's he's a good friend of mine. But he if you're looking for a book that takes on some of the (coughs) faithless treatment of the historical Jesus, you want this book by Craig called Fabricating Jesus, How Modern Scholars Distort the Gospels. Um, But let me get to what we want to end up with. Christ of faith, historical Jesus, the real Jesus. So this is what we did for 17, 1800 years. Last 200 years we've been trying to do this, hoping that there's some intersection between them. Let me just give you one quick example where I think as Latter-day Saints we have some added evidence. Uh, Let's tell the Christmas story that we love so much. You look at Matthew 1 through 2, you look, look at Luke 1 through 2. And if you read those texts separately and don't harmonize them, you actually find they disagree a lot. And this causes historical Jesus people some problems. Matthew doesn't even mention Nazareth until the end of his account. In fact, a lot of people think that Joseph was from Bethlehem. Okay, well, but, but, but he, he was engaged to Mary. They must have lived in the same town. Have you been to India recently? Arranged marriages? You don't, you don't even need to know each other to get married. Um, but anyway, you go through all of these things. Luke knows nothing about the massacre of the children of Bethlehem, nothing about the flight to Egypt. But when you go to the Book of Mormon and look at those beautiful passages, 1 Nephi 11, Messiah 3, Alma 7, all these prophecies about Jesus, what's really interesting is you find out the things that are important to us from a Book of Mormon perspective are the things Matthew and Luke don't disagree on. Mary was a virgin from Nazareth. She divinely conceived Jesus. says nothing about Joseph, where he was from. Jesus was the son of God. His mother's name, Mary. That's from Messiah. Jesus is born near Jerusalem. Okay, as we know from Alma 7. Mary is a precious and chosen vegetable. Uh, chosen vegetable. Vessel. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. The things that we know, it's back to Donazine. It's back to Boltman. The things that we actually know are just a handful, but they're precious. I, I often will tell students as we're going through the scriptures, Use Elder Oaks' good, better, best model. Let's talk about absolutes, probables, and possibles. The absolutes that we know and we need to know to be saved that are salvific are few. And there are all these probables, and these probables you can find a general authority quote from or two or three scriptures for. You never go wrong living the probables, and the probables support the absolutes. But where do we spend all of our time in high priest group? (laughs) On the possibles. And there's all this debate, and there's all this first quest, and second quest, and third quest stuff, right? So, let me move on and discovering the real Jesus, the revealed risen Lord. In the Synoptic Gospels, 
we had men who knew and loved Jesus, who walked around the Holy Land with him, who thought they knew him. And then three of them were taken up on a mount, and by the power of revelation, found out he was completely different than they thought. The transfiguration was, if you will, a foretaste of the risen, glorified Jesus. They got to see what the kingdom coming in power would look like. What that teaches me is the actual Jesus doesn't come from just a blind acceptance of the Christ of faith in a text or from historical methods. It comes from revelation. It comes from experience. John the Revelator, Revelation chapter 1. Jesus' best friends, by all accounts, according to the fourth gospel, right? He's the beloved disciple. Saw the risen Lord in a guise he had never seen him before on the Isle of Patmos. As Latter-day Saints, a young boy, we would say, went to a grove of trees. And I know there are several accounts of the first vision, but all of them agree that he saw a glor- glorious being or two in that grove. Section 110, Joseph and Oliver saw a man, and the description, if I brought my doctor comments, I'd read it to you, but the powerful Jesus he encountered. Let me just close with, with another anecdote, and then we'll answer up, open up some questions. When I introduce the Gospel of John in a class after we've gone through Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and I have to kind of justify why I like John so much, I tell them I love John because it's portrait of Jesus, which is just one of four, seems the most familiar to me. And I think it's because it's the most consonant with the Book of Mormon portrayal of Jesus as Jehovah, as the Lord. And and I finally have to admit to my students, it's not for literary reasons, theological reasons, but it's because as I read the Jesus in John, for me at least, it may be a different gospel for you, it resonates with what I feel in my heart as the Lord whom I love and worship. Historical Jesus stuff is my passion. I think it's fascinating. I think it's interesting. Sometimes the intersection with the Christ of faith that I've always had, since my mom taught it to me as a little boy, is neat and interesting. But what makes a difference, what's truly salvific to me, I don't know why I keep looking at you for salvific. I think it's because you laughed the most the first time I said it. Um, is the Jesus I feel I experience when I've sinned and I'm repenting and a peace of conscience comes upon me. It is the Jesus I encounter as I sing it's the Jesus I know after I pray to my father and I close in his name it's the Jesus I know when I teach my children Uh, I've had some discussions with friends about this you know our religion is not just something we talk about it's something we experience it's something we live it's something that each of us has to experience for him or herself in the name of Jesus Christ amen I don't know if I'm supposed to close in the name of Jesus, but I like Jesus, so I did. Okay, yes? Uh, a lot of these scholars seem to be in the 20th century. They're, they're bringing different. Yeah, the first quest went from 1700 to 1953 or something, yeah. Have, have these scholars, um, are they steeped in the works of Adam Clark or Alfred Eckerstein, Frederick Clark, who okay. plays context and historical studies? Yeah, be careful. A lot of times as Latter-day Saints, I don't know if you all know Edersheim in particular in Farrar, we, we privilege those two authors more than most Christians. And you know why? Because both James Talmadge and Bruce McConkie quote them extensively. And, and they're 19th century, I mean, they're late 19th century authors. So they would say they've moved past that. But you know, when I mentioned something about periodization, the reality is we keep reinventing the same wheel, Right? It's actually incorrect to say the third quest is the first time we're trying to contextualize, because as you've rightly pointed out, we have some people in the late 19th century. 
So I, you know, I don't know all the scholars personally. I haven't looked at all their footnotes to see whether they quote Edward Schemerfar. No one quotes them anymore now, really, because the sexy thing to do is to quote the most recent people. So I, I didn't answer your question. I just responded to it. So why don't you re reformulate? Well, I, I was just wondering. I mean, I, I throw Adam Clark into, into that same mix because I have read Clark. Uh, they provide that, that historical setting and context, which is required. Uh, to understand truth. Yeah, the reason why I kind of, and, and I went off on the wrong path because I kind of reacted against Farrar and Edersheim because it is true that their method is correct in contextualizing. But we have learned so much more about the first century world since the 19th century. See, that's the problem. And the problem is some of those things have made them into endnotes of certain books that we even send missionaries with. Yeah. And we start having eyes of needles and illegalities of the Roman trial of Jesus, which scholars now know are not strictly accurate. Okay, so yes, the method of contextualization absolutely they're influenced by, but not their conclusions because they've learned a lot more about it since. Yes. Yeah. On the spectrum of, of low and high Christology. Yeah, I skipped that whole slide and I apologize, yeah, but I, we only had uh, so much time. Do you say it's fair that, that we have a slightly lower Christology than, let's say, a, a, an evangelical? And if you disagree with that, why? Okay, yes, no. Let me just quickly tell you what we mean by Christology. When we say the person work of Jesus, usually Mark is low, Matthew and Luke, because he says Jesus is the Son of God at baptism, Matthew and Luke is Son of God at birth, John is Son of God from the beginning. And the reason most people say we have a lower Christology is because evangelicals subscribe to the creeds and Jesus is God. Yeah. But, you know, this is apples and oranges. We maintain that Jesus is God. Now that makes us uncomfortable because that's not our speech. But John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or the Word was divine, if that makes you more comfortable. What's the Book of Mormon title page say? Show that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. What does Jesus say in 3 Nephi 11 when he touched down in Bountiful? I am the God of Israel and the whole world. So I would say Latter-day Saints have a very high Christology. It's just not a Christology of, the technical term is homoousia. That's why I said slightly, slightly yeah. lower. <laughs> I call it a parallel. Okay. I call it yeah, a parallel. Yeah, yeah, see, and see, no one's willing to think outside the box. But that's why you change the wording. Yeah. We have a parallel Christology. Okay. I don't know if that meant anything to anybody here, but he liked it. <laughs> and he likes South <laughs> Okay, yes. Many of the... Um, Historians that you uh, showed us on your slides um, had different uh, slants that they were doing. You know, like he was a social reformer, right, right, right. He was this or he was that or whatever. But uh, there was kind of like all of the ones you highlighted all kind of had the assumption that he was real. I, I wanted to know if you could talk about some historians because I uh, I'm a librarian by occupation. I come across some historians who expressly deny the historiosity of Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and I, I skipped over my friend Craig Evans, but Craig has actually pointed out, and I think he's absolutely correct, we have few figures from the ancient world who are as well attested. We don't have as many attestations for Plato as we do for Jesus. So part of that is just a reaction because everyone's believed in the 900 years we're not going to. But very few of these actual serious biblical scholars say that there was not a man named Yeshua ben Yosef from Nazareth. Okay, very few people believe that, who are actually in the field. Let me say something else, um, because our time is short. How many times did I say, I viscerally reacted against this person, but then when I got to know his works better, I understood he believed. I didn't have that as one of my lessons of a quest, but it's a lesson for Eric, and maybe a lesson for all of us. Let's stop assuming the worst about people, because they seem to think differently than we do. 
it doesn't mean they're any less earnest or any less loving of Jesus. They may have a different view of him. And that's been a real eye-opener for me in recent years. We can appreciate the insights and understandings of other people even if we don't end up agreeing with them. And Joe and I have been talking about this polemic kind of approach to things. Uh, I'm all for apologetics defending the faith, but we don't need to be polemical about it. What is it President Hinckley used to always say? Let's be civil to each other. Let's disagree agreeably. Let's, let's do it the way Jesus would do it. Let me say one other thing while I'm thinking about it, and I'll take your question. For the third question, we have all these different models. Why is it A, B, or C? Why can't it be all of them? Because you know what? My Jesus is the best in everything. He's the best apocalyptic prophet. He's the best social reformer. He's the best faith. He's Jesus. In your opinion, if you have one of the work of Cardinal Ratzinger? Uh, Pope Emeritus? <laughs> uh, you know, I haven't read it all. I've read about it. So my opinion, if I had one, would, would be not an informed one. But my superficial understanding of what he wrote, uh, I'm all for it. Uh, the Catholic Church, our Catholic friends, have been enormously blessed in their last two popes. Now, I know that Pope Benedict was seen as a very, very conservative one. But what a humble man. When he knew he was either not well or God inspired him, he wasn't up to the task, he stepped aside. And what did the world get? Not just the Catholic Church. They got Pope Francis. I'll tell you, if we could set up a lunch meeting with Pope Francis, President Uthdorf, and Elder Holland, we could save this world. <laughs> well, I was astounded to hear Francis and uh, Mother Teresa and uh, Pastor Bonhoeffer quoted all in the same Yeah. Last and I'll tell you my personal feeling. God loves all his children. He loves his Buddhist children, he loves his Catholic children, he loves his Mormon children, and why wouldn't he inspire good women and men and all those traditions to do the best for his children? Okay. My opinion. I'm a man of few opinions. Yes? The Dead Sea Scrolls, they don't say anything about Jesus, and yet they greatly expand our understanding of the context of the first century. They how do. do they, how do they help in getting at this historical? Here, here's the problem: the Dead Sea Scrolls, because sometimes we do whatever's sexy, right? And Dead Sea Scrolls are cool. Dead Sea Scrolls give us important early witnesses of canonical text, and so when you look at, you know, Qumran, Isaiah, and those things, great. But they have a lot of sectarian material, and the Qumran community, if they were seniors, are like. They're like Warren Jeffs' group. No, really. They were the only people, they were, they were everyone, God's going to kill everybody else. So you have, when you say that, I have to ask you, what Dead Sea Scrolls stuff? So when it comes to their early witnesses of, of biblical text, that's important. Of course, are they copying them correctly? Or, you know, we say, wow, that's early, so that must be better. Well, it's a very peculiar group with a very def, you know, clear agenda. It does tell us that the Jewish world was very different than we thought, and there were lots of different groups. Yeah, that's what I was getting yeah. at. Is, yeah. You know, the Judaisms of the first century and how it expands our view of... And but but remember that they were a very small group. They were a very small minority. Yes, brother? It's looking like um, what you read, what's your process of picking, because there's so much out there. I need to find a better one, because I, <laughs> I read too much, and I get too little work done as a result. Um, you take recommendations from people you trust, and eventually you find your own, you know. that's I did recommend you one, because it gives you two different views in an amiable way, which is my thing, okay? So, all right. Yes, ma'am. 
As a scholar of the messiness mm-hmm. of the uh, the Gospels, the uh, New Testament <coughs> source documents, how do you deal with the Book of Mormon and the black and white very? That could be a whole lecture. Unambiguous. Yeah. And unambiguous for the most part, right? It's the most correct book in that it tells us the doctrine of Christ the most completely. Um, I always tell students, as we understand it, you have prophetic people involved in every state of composition. You've got prophets, you've got prophet editors, you've got prophet abridgers, you've got prophet translators. So that certainly is different from what we have in the Hebrew Bible or the Greek New Testament. You know, I, I, and it's interesting you put it as messiness. I would call it the delightful variety. But I, I'm, a positive, I'm a positive guy. <laughs> but I, I welcome the comparison and contrast. And say, I don't know that we're used to doing that, right? We have four books, and they're all scripture, and they're all printed, and, and they just are. I, I love to use the Book of Mormon as a comparison and a contrast, you know, and, and that helps me see the shades and colors. But that's me. Right. Yeah, brother. Uh, Margaret Barker. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are interested in her and, and what she writes. Um, does she have valuable insights? Is she? A she has interesting ideas. She's idiosyncratic. She's idiosyncratic. Yeah. She has very interesting ideas that sometimes overlap with things we hold true to, so we get excited. And I've met Margaret, and, and she is fascinating, but there are a couple things. Let me just throw one out there. You know, she believes that Josiah's reforms were wrong, right? That it's eviscerating the original Israelite religion. Now, do you know what book that Jesus quotes more than any other book but Isaiah? Deuteronomy. According to Margaret, that's the one that's all wrong. So be careful with Margaret. She's an independent scholar. Nothing wrong with being independent scholars, isn't that where Michael is these days? But there's something called peer review, and there's something about respons- institutional responsibility. And, and when you're, you know, sometimes having a post in a university and working with colleagues controls things. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm not being negative or critical. I'm just saying, be careful. You're a positive guy. I try. It's because I'm a Christian. I know that's going to sound strange, so I'm not a good one. I'm not a good one, but that's why I am a Christian. That's what the message of Jesus is, right? Okay. Hey, thanks. I'm sorry this was a little scattered. I just had lots of stuff I want to say, and it's really interesting. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit DialogueJournal.com. Thank you.